Hello and welcome to Dismantle Racism. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. My goal is to help you to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. I really do want to create a world where racial equity is the norm, and I want you to help me do that. We're going to get started today with our meditation, and I'm going to do a combination of things today, but I will read uh, one of the meditations from my book on dismantling racism, healing separation from the inside out. I begin every chapter with one, but as always, I want to invite you to start by really Just closing your eyes if you can and planting your feet firmly on the floor or on the ground if you're outside and just centering yourself in some way. Connecting your body if you can with the chair that you're sitting in or if you're sitting on the floor or the couch, just connect and ground yourself and take a moment to close your eyes and to find your breath. And to tune into that which gives you life by taking a deep breath in and releasing it and connecting with your sacred intelligence, that divine part of you that helps you to manifest your greatness while helping other people to manifest their greatness. Just really take a deep breath in. And knowing that the choices that you make to dismantle racism are important. Reminding yourself that you are loved and you are love itself. You are a part of changing the status quo because you are connected with all of humanity. Just breathe in and out knowing that the power of one contributes to the power of community. Now take a deep breath in and out and listen to these words. Empowering source, give me the courage to act in a manner that works for the good of all, to act in ways that are just, loving, and peaceful. Jolt my senses, Awaken my heart, stir my limbs, lift my voice, remind me that I am the manifestation of you, my sacred source, and must move in faith even as I seek your divine intervention. Help me to be a part of the solution and not the problem. Remind me that my silence is complicit. Give me the strength, courage, and awareness to do what I can, with who I can, and for whom I can. Let me be a light within the world, in my words and in my deeds. And so it is, Ashe and Amen. I am so delighted that you have taken the time to be with me this morning. And one of the things that I want to really talk about before I get too uh, much into the show is that often my colleagues and friends will tell me that, Terrell, when you say 
dismantling racism. It's too overwhelming. It's too big to really think about because can we really get rid of racism? And actually, it paralyzes some people to think about trying to dismantle racism because they believe there's nothing I can do about it. And I get it. I understand, especially if you don't know what to do or even how to recognize racism when it's happening. But here's what I want you to keep in mind. You cannot change the entire system of racism. And that is not what I'm asking you to do when I invite you to join me in the movement of dismantling racism. But I do want you to know that you are a key part of changing the status quo. I invite you to start with yourself. That's what it's about. It involves looking at how racism shows up in your life and in your community. And it involves you asking yourself the hard questions, really thinking about in what ways do you perpetuate a system of racism unknowingly and even knowingly. As I talk about in my book on dismantling racism, you really have to heal racial separation by looking at yourself. It's an inside out job for all of us. We have to take a look at what are the things that we need to change about our thoughts? What are the things that we need to change about our behavior in order for us to dismantle racism? It requires us to become conscious of the ways in which racism exists, not only in society, but in our lives, in our families, in our community. It requires us to pay attention. So I want you to think for a minute about the ways in which racism impacts your life. Now I know instantly you're gonna start thinking about the negative ways that racism impacts your life, but actually racism impacts our lives even in positive ways because there are some who benefit from racism and racist practices and others who do not. So for instance, I might ask you to look at your community, look at your school system. What is the racial group that's predominant in your school district, for instance? And I would invite you to think about this. There's predominantly one racial group who benefits from that particular scenario? How does it benefit the larger society, in fact? How does it impact the larger society? Then ask yourself the question, who is, um, who is impacted in a negative sense by what's happening with that scenario? And so if you start to ask yourself a series of questions, you will start to notice more and more, what's the backdrop in society? If you live in a what, all white neighborhood, ask yourself, why is this neighborhood all white, for instance? Even if it's a predominantly black or Latina area, you might say, why is this the case? Where is racial equity showing up or inequities showing up? What is the difference between all white neighborhoods versus all uh, black or Latino neighborhoods or or Asian, or Native American even? What are the disparities? 
who benefits, who's privileged by it. And then the way you began to say, how can I dismantle racism? Is you ask yourself this key question. What's my role in all of this? And then I invite you to ask yourself this really, really real question. And that question is, do I want to change the system? How will it change things for me? Am I willing to give up some of my privileges if the system changes? What will happen if I don't? And then I also want you to keep in mind that often it doesn't mean that you have to give up your privileges. Doesn't mean that you have to give up the ways in which you live your life. It means becoming more inclusive to allow other people to come in, to allow other people to benefit. Because trust me, when I benefit from what's happening in society, you benefit as well. What would it be like if the world was all just the same? We would not grow beyond where we are. And so I invite you to think about starting really, really small in dismantling racism. If you think about starting small, it will become manageable for you. Don't think about necessarily starting by taking down a whole system. Do the work that you need to do on yourself. Read the books that you need to read. Take the courses that you need to read. Uh, take. I often talk about the courses that I offer on dismantling racism. I invite you to go to sacredintelligence.com. Find out more about the courses I offer. Take the courses that are offered by your company. Take the opportunity to learn more about the injustices and the inequities that show up in this world. Take the opportunity to do the personal work, the self-development work that you need to do. So it's also important for you to know when you think about dismantling racism, that you are not alone in this work. In my book, I actually talk about it being a shared movement for us. The only way I can do the work that I do on dismantling racism is because I know that there are other people in the movement with me. There are other people who want to make sure that equity exists for all. There are other people who are trying very hard to erase the disparities that exist. But there are also people who support me in my day to day. There are people who support me on the radio show. There are people who support me in the work that I do uh, just overall. I have people that I bounce ideas off of. There are people who help me with carrying this movement forward. So know that whenever you are truly interested in dismantling racism, you are not walking alone. There are people who want to collaborate with you. I would love to be one of those people to collaborate with you and to walk you through this journey. But there are many, many of us out there who are doing this work. Find somebody who will walk with you. Today, I'm really excited to have one of my guests uh, on the show who's not only a colleague and a friend, and we are going to spend some time talking about the paradox of power. 
We're going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I want to introduce you to my guest, Dr. Lynn Bowes-Sperry. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy. And I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you on edge? Hey, we live in challenging, edgy times, so let's lean in. I'm Sandra Bargeman, the host of The Edge of Every Day, which airs each Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges. That's The Edge of Every Day on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. back with the Dismantle Racism show. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. And today I am here with my guest, Dr. Lynn Bowes-Ferry, and we're going to be taking a look at bystander intervention because we know that racism and prejudice often rear um, their ugly heads with witnesses around. And so what do we do? How do we engage in a process of intervening when we see something happens? So my guest, Dr. Lynn Bowes-Ferry, or Dr. B.S., as she's sometimes called by her students, uh, and not because she's full of B.S., but really just because uh, those are her initials, but she brings a lot of power to the work that she does on bystander intervention and really looking at um, harassment, sexual harassment, to be in fact, but she is an associate professor of management at California State University, East Bay, and she is also a management consultant. Her research on bystander intervention helps organizations improve their ability to manage problematic behavior before it escalates to illegal harassment. Her work has been published in academic journals, and it has been used by the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, Canadian Parliament, Australian Humanity, Human Rights Commission, and various media outlets, such as the Los Angeles Times, um, 
She is a phenomenal, phenomenal individual, and we'll learn a bit more about her. But Dr. Lynn, welcome to the show. You have to unmute yourself. Yes, I'm muting myself. Good. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, I'm honored to be a guest on your show. So I want to just tell our listeners, um, you know, Dr. Lynn or Dr. B.S., <laughs> or really Lynn, as I know you, that we are actually really, really good friends. And I think it's really important. Um, I was telling you right before the show, I was watching something where they were asking white people, did they have a black friend? And they had to stop and think about, oh, do I have a black friend and what's their name, right? And if you have to stop and think about whether you have a black friend, you probably don't have a black friend, you have a black acquaintance. But Len and I have been friends for at least 18 years, maybe 19 years, uh, maybe even 20 years. I don't know. Our kids were in preschool together. And what was interesting about it is, is that in our neck of the woods, even though she's in California now, our area can be very clannish. And by that, I mean, people sort of stick with their own. It doesn't matter the color, they just stick with their own. But there was something about our connection where we became friends. And she actually noticed me first. And then she eventually introduced me to her mom as her budding friend. I will never forget that. She's like, mom, this is my friend in the making. Because we had not yet reached that, that friendship level yet. But what I think is so critical is how you and I just sort of navigated the system where we are in New England, where people kind of stay in their own parts. We just navigated the system and became friends. And I think that's largely because of you, actually. So I just want to thank you for that and, our, and, and um, just you looking beyond color, looking beyond anything. Cause at the time you didn't even know that we shared similarities in yeah. terms of both being PhDs and that sort of things. Thing. She just saw this brilliant woman she wanted to mm -hmm. become friends with. But Lynn, I just want to say there's actually something that you taught me and I have talked about this before to you. And so I think you might remember it because Lynn and I also began to talk about race right away. And I share these stories with the people who are listening because I want folks to understand it doesn't have to be hard for us to reach across the lines. All you have to do is just open your mouth up and start talking and figure out what you have in common. I remember riding with you one day, Lynn, and, and, and we were in the car. I think maybe I was on my way to do a training. I'm not sure uh, at, at your university, but you said to me that you didn't like the word white trash. Do you remember that conversation? Yes, I do. And, um, and tell people why you don't like that word. Okay, well, there are many reasons I don't like that word. But in the context of race, the reason I don't like it is because the idea that you have to put white trash, it implies that everyone else is trash. But you know, most white people aren't. So we need to distinguish this group of white people who are trashy. So it's just another way to uh, put us into groups. That one's based on class. But for me, 
the class piece is very important, but since we're talking about race today, it's the implication of what it means for everyone else who's not white. Right, and, and exactly. So it's, it's, it's both and, right? Because one of the things that's been really hard for people, white people who have grown up without a lot of money and who've grown up in poverty, there's always been this conversation of, but I was treated X, Y, and Z. And so they don't think it's based on race. They think it's based on class. And I will say, listen, I understand that poor white people in this country have a hard way to go. I get that. Here's the distinction that I try to make when I'm teaching my, my classes is that anytime you as a white person, if you put on that suit and you go over into that other class and people don't know that you came from poverty, at that particular point, things are not equal between us anymore right? You're not treated from this place of oppression. However, I do know the mindset of a person who's poor and white can still be the same because I've done this work long enough to know that people still hold on to those identities that they have. So, uh, but, but we're here today because we want to talk about the important work that you do, but I just want to thank you for um, really, Lynn, the work that you do in general but the work that you do from a human being and a soul level, you see people. And that's what dismantling racism is about. Seeing people showing up as our true authentic selves and not even caring what, what color that person is, but recognizing that there are differences that impact us, right? And so I think that that's been the beauty of of our friendship over the over the years. So I thank you for that and that and the parties that that we've had at, at one another's houses. So so Lynn, let's let's just jump into it. Um, you know, I want to make sure that we have time to really discuss your work on bystander intervention. Tell us a little bit about what led you to actually begin studying bystander intervention and looking at it from the perspective of harassment and discrimination. Well, um, when I entered University of Connecticut's PhD program, uh, we had to think about a topic to write our dissertation on. And since my degrees in management, whatever I studied would have to be related to employment or the workplace. And um, my dissertation advisor, Gary Powell, focused on gender-related issues. So I was like, okay, I'll take what I'm interested in which is essentially why people do not step up when they mm -hmm. see bad stuff going down in general. But now since we're saying I have a management degree, why don't people step up when they see bad things going down at work? And now we add in the gender dimension from my advisor, what do people do when they see harassment and discrimination going down at work? So, so that's kind of the short answer. And then a little more detail just is that um, I refer to my family as having the justice gene, which mm. uh, has been in us from, I, I don't know if it's genetic, it's probably environmental, maybe a little of both, but I cannot handle seeing somebody else mistreat another person. Mm. And it's just the way I was raised that you get involved, but you know, usually the way we would get involved was not always the best. Like we might be a little too harsh and now everyone's like, oh, Caitlin, that was a little over the top. So I've learned to smooth it out as I have aged. Well, no one could ever accuse you of being silent, 
because I do know that you're going to speak up if you if you see something. So tell us a little bit about what you discovered in your research in terms of just thinking about why do why don't people get involved? All right. So um, many reasons people don't get involved. And the one that is usually discussed to me is not even the most important. It's something called the bystander effect or diffusion of responsibility. And that's the idea that if 10 people see something, each person thinks the other person will step up and do something. So Mm -hmm. they don't need to do it because there's nine others who can. And if no one steps up, you're one-tenth responsible, right? If something mm-hmm. in people's heads versus if I'm the only one who sees it, I'm 100% responsible if something you know really bad happens here. So um, does that exist? Yes. But for me, what I think more is more important, especially I study um, the types of harassment that are more ambiguous because when it's egregious, it's clear, right? So a big piece of people not getting involved is ambiguity. All right. So, you know, that there's a typical uh, microaggression that's discussed about referring to a black person as articulate. All right. That's a lot different than somebody hanging a noose. Oh, and these are all things that have happened within the last years, by the way, these examples, hanging a noose, putting a KKK hood, using every word you can think of that's derogatory. And even one really weird example of somebody simply a black man trying to use a vending machine and another person feeling the need to say, hey, that machine doesn't take crack money. Mm. So so I wonder, and, and these are egregious. It, it really is, they, they, they really are egregious. But Lynn, do you, in your research and the work that you've done, do you find that if a white person sees another white person tying a noose, for instance, over another person's locker or desk, do you see other white people getting involved or do they laugh it off because they're uncomfortable and they're afraid of getting involved? Well, I, I don't know specifically in this case, but I'll, I'll just go with you know what I know from, from the general study of the area. First of all, hanging a noose is egregious. All right. That's, that's way different than saying to somebody, you're articulate, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so if somebody didn't do something, when a noose is being hung, they, they are now a culprit as well, in my mind, if they have seen it, because that is egregious. Um, so that's the kind of situation that ironically, though, somebody might be afraid to intervene because it's so egregious. You're thinking, all right, if this person is, and I'm, I could say bold, but I'm going to say stupid, <laughs> stupid enough to hang a noose over someone's desk or locker, what might they do to me if I say something to them, right? So a lot of it has to do simply with moral, what I call, and I didn't make up the term, moral courage, you know? Mm -hmm. It's easy to sit back and worry about something. I would definitely worry about it. But the the idea of courage is doing something when you're afraid. It's not laughing here, it's moving forward when you are afraid. That's exactly right. And here's the thing even if you aren't going to be the kind of person to just say something in that moment, there's an HR person, there's a supervisor, there's someone that you can go to. And even if it's your supervisor doing it, there's a person above that supervisor who can intervene as well. Now, I know that for you, it's important to discuss the term involvement versus intervention, but we need to take a quick break. And when we return, I'd love for you to really 
if you could just talk about the differences between those two things and why you prefer it. We are going to be right back. My guest today is Dr. Lynn Bowes-Ferry, and we're really taking a look at the work that she's done around harassment and discrimination as it relates to bystander intervention. We'll be right back. Howdy, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. With my guest today, Dr. Lynn Bowes-Ferry, and before the break, we were talking about some of Dr. Lynn's research on bystander intervention. I ask you to um, tell us the difference between the term, you know, involvement and in, in intervention, why you prefer that term. Yeah, so um, when I hear the term intervention, it sounds like you're interjecting yourself somewhere where you don't belong. You know, like you're a third party or a bystander. Why are you getting involved in this? This is between these two people or these three people. Wrong, <laughs> especially when you're at work, remember? So if you're on the street, on the subway, in my opinion, if you see something, you're still part of the dynamic. Now put that at work. Even if you're not a supervisor, if you know your coworkers are doing these types of things, it's not interjecting. You're all part of the same group. You are part of that culture, right? And more and more, as you know, because of the work you do, companies are trying to increase inclusiveness and belongingness, right? So if you act like you're some third party who doesn't need to step up or isn't involved, you're completely wrong. You are involved. Intervention seems scarier too. Like becoming involved, I'm helpful, I'm improving our situation versus I'm intervening and you can't do this and you know that 
that doesn't usually go over well, right? When you're in someone's right. space. Oh, Len, tell me more. Please tell right, me more right. about why I can't do this. Right, right, right. You know, and it and and I love the fact that you're saying the involvement piece. And I do want us to talk a little bit more about uh, some examples of um, how people can like get involved or what are the obstacles? You know, we mentioned fear before, but what are some of the other obstacles that might get in the way when people are stepping up as it relates to racism? Because we need to be able to overcome these obstacles. So I'd say the most important ones to me are um, social influence, right? So the idea that if several people see something, we take our cues from others, all right? So in my head, um, and you know this, I am not a poker face. So if I was in the group, this dynamic probably wouldn't happen. So, but the dynamic is you're thinking internally, okay, that was weird. That seemed wrong, sketchy, whatever. let me look and see if what vibe I'm getting from everyone else in the group. And everyone else is internally saying to themselves, that was wrong, that didn't feel right, but nobody else looks upset, right? So it's a term called pluralistic ignorance. We are each thinking the same thing. That's the plural part, but we're ignorant because we're going by someone's facial expression. Now, once again, let's put this in the workplace context. Do you show everything you feel at work? Probably not, right? Like a lot of us, you know, we don't want to appear vulnerable. We want to look like we're, you know, you can't get to me. You're not going to break me. So, you know, a lot of times we'll act like we don't feel something, even when we're the target, right? The other thing is we take our cues from the target, the person being targeted by the behavior. Well, they don't look upset, so it's not a big deal. Yeah, maybe I don't want to look upset because then I'm vulnerable and it looks like you've one-upped me. So I think That's a big deal. And then I think the second big piece, which is why I do the bystander intervention involvement, which I'm going to call it training, is that people want to do something. There's so much research on workplace bullying, harassment, and discrimination that tells us that people who know about it but are not the targets want to do something. And when they don't, it's because they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to do it. They were caught off guard. So I think those are the two big things, taking our cues from other people who don't look upset when in fact they may be, and honestly being caught off guard and not having a script, right? Like we have these scripts in our head that if we memorize them, we're like, okay, this is what I do when that happens. But if you don't learn that, you're like, oh, gee, what should I do? I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. So what do you invite people to do when you are you know, training folks and coaching folks, what are some steps that people can take? Well, the first step is don't focus on other people. If it feels wrong to you, that's enough. It doesn't, everyone does not have to agree. In fact, everyone will not agree. Um, That's why when I do my trainings, I have them, uh, I'll give a scenario, then I'll have people discuss it at their table. And, you know, then I'll have them report back. And when I just did this, a person stood up and said, well, we did not agree at our table at all about this. And I said, it would have been strange if you did, right? So that's the first thing. Do not look to others, use your internal compass. That is enough. Um, And then the second thing I let them know is just because someone else isn't getting involved doesn't mean you shouldn't. And then the third thing, and this I think is the most important. A lot of uh, trainers, management consultants like to say there's one best way. I throw that out immediately. Like I I am a firm believer in contingencies. What works for one person won't work for another. So a lot of times people say you need to do it in the moment. Otherwise, 
people don't know that you stepped up. Everyone is not going to speak in the moment, period. So if they think that's the only right way to do it, there's no other option. And now they're ashamed if they think they should have. So what I say is the right way is the way that you will actually do it. So if that means two days later, going into the office of the person who was targeted and saying, you know, I felt so awkward in that meeting. I wanted to say something. I didn't know what to say. Also, I didn't know if speaking up would make you feel more uncomfortable because now I'm like, hey, people, in case you didn't notice what that person just did, this is what they did, right? So it can actually be discomforting to the person who's targeted. So what I'm saying is whatever is your style is the right style then or later. I, I love that. I actually, I, I, I love that because not everyone is going to be as vocal as Dr. Lynn or as vocal as I am in any of these cases. But you know, it's interesting because as you're talking about all of these things, I've thought about the ways in which I've had to stand up to inequities that I've noticed and really to situations that were very, harmful, but it's also because for me, and and we want to talk about how this relates to racism and inequities, it's about becoming aware beforehand that something is actually racist or becoming aware of the microaggressions or becoming aware of the tapestry. You know, I used to work when I was getting um, my PhD and I had to do my clinical training. I worked in this setting that was for special needs students. They had behavioral problems. And interestingly enough, most of them were black and brown students, but the people who worked with them were white people. I think I was one of maybe two people, uh, particularly on the clinical side. And I remember that there was this person who worked in in the um, timeout room. And the timeout room was where you would take people down, the kids down if they were acting out, right? And so every morning when they got off the bus, I mean, immediately when they got off the bus, this particular white man who was probably about six feet or so was yelling at these kids. And all I could think about as a person of color was these black and brown kids start their day with a white man yelling at them. What is the message that's going in his head? now? All of the staff would talk about him, but no one would do anything about it. So one day he actually was restraining a 12-year-old kid and he was on top of him. And I happened to be in the timeout room. There was a nurse there and there was another clinician who had more experience than I did. One was restraining a kid. The other one was standing next to me. He was screaming at this 12-year-old. He was on top of him, screaming in his ear. And it was like outrageous. And I walked over because I'm looking at the clinician who had more experience than I and the nurse, neither, who were both white, neither of them saying anything. And I'm an intern. And then I simply walked over and I touched him on the shoulder because he, he, he was like a madman almost. And I said, I think he's gotten the picture. And he calmed down enough and, and they got up off of the kid. And then when he went out of the door, he said, and if anybody has a problem with it, say something about it, blah, blah, blah. And I walked out and I said, well, actually I do. And the way I handled it was, I said, every day these kids get off the bus, you yell and scream at them. I said, first of all, you're going to have a heart attack. But secondly, 
look at what you're doing to these kids. And so we had a conversation about it. And from that point, you know, my supervisor said, hey, I heard you intervene. You were the only one that stepped up. Of course, someone has to say when enough is enough because he could have killed that young man. And then what? So we have to ask ourselves, should I get involved? But to say, sometimes you have to think beyond just yourself. And so I love the ways in which you're talking about, we will all intervene in different ways because maybe afterwards, those two people then could have had a conversation with that man. But one of the things I want to ask you, Lynn, um, is this, you know, we're talking about here, the paradox of power. And in the work that you do, you know, you go in and you speak to companies. What is this idea of the paradox of power? Okay, so the paradox of power is essentially um, most companies, or many, I should say, have these programs in place through human resource management. They have formal reporting channels because if they don't and someone reports discrimination, they will be sued, all right? So it's compliance-based. So the idea is, oh, we, we're trying to protect employees from these negative behaviors, which to some extent is true, but I have seen people running their business based on avoiding a lawsuit, all right? Mm -hmm. So when you are driven by compliance, your focus is different than when you're driven by helping people and having a positive psychological, you know, social environment. That's a lot different than operating because if we don't do this, we might get sued. Right, right. And you know, as it relates to just thinking about discrimination and racism in terms of just making your employees feel safe. Because if I have to endure somebody says that machine doesn't take crack money or those types of things, people make comments all the time that are microaggressions. And sometimes, quite frankly, they're just macro uh, aggressions as well. I mean, that, that clearly is a macro one, you know, but there are times that people even make assumptions about who we are, what we have. I remember I was at work once and of course this person didn't mean any harm by it, but I, I had taken off the day before because I stayed, had to stay home for a repair person to come in and I think fix the water heater. And I said, oh, it cost my sister a lot of money to have this repair you know, person to come in. And he said, you mean it cost your landlord a lot of money? And I said, no, it cost my sister a lot of money. She owned the house. But there was the assumption there. And sometimes when you work in a setting where people are constantly making statements like that, that they don't mean any harm by it, it chips away at you. When you're in in a setting where they're ignoring your contributions or just, again, constantly making statements, it can feel like harassment. Those things are subtle, but they're harassment nevertheless. But if, as a person of color, I can't go and talk to my supervisor about it, then I think it gets to that issue that you're talking about, a paradox of power. It's a check check mark, but you don't really intend on changing the system at all to accommodate and to make me feel safe and secure in this setting. 
So we're going to take a really quick break. And if you have some words that you want to chime in on about what I just said, uh, we will be right back for you to do so. And then I have a couple more questions before our show ends today. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be frank about health to advocate for all of us. all pet lovers pet avengers assemble on the professionals and animal lovers show we believe the bond between animal lovers is incredibly strong it mirrors that bond between pets and their owners through this program we come together to learn educate and advocate join us live every wednesday at 2 p.m at talkradio.nyc You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. I am back with my guest today, Dr. Bo Sperry. It has been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. I do want to ask you, before we move into uh, our takeaways, your work actually was used with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Could you just tell us a little bit about that um, before we we move into the takeaways? Yeah, I I would love to do that. Um, So... Harassment's been illegal for decades. Yet hashtag Me Too, even though that was based on sexual harassment, occurred in 2017. Um, so obviously there are problems. So EEOC put together a task force in 2015 to study workplace harassment. And one of the questions they ask, which I always say, I really hope this is a rhetorical question, is after 30 years, have we been missing something? Uh, yeah. Obviously, you have been missing something. And the piece they have been missing is tied into that paradox of power is the idea that if everything is compliance based, it puts the onus on the person who is being harassed or discriminated against. It's on you to report, even though supervisors are are allowing this to occur. Right. So once again, in the workplace context, You see these people over and over and over. It's not like a random encounter where you see something going down, you know, on public transportation. So the fact that we continue to have policies that people will not use, most targets do not report harassment, yet we have that in place. So check, 
right? So finally, what the EEOC said is what I said literally in my dissertation in 1996. So yeah, a few decades go by and they concluded it's on us. Uh, bystanders are pivotal. It's part of the culture. It's part of the climate. You cannot expect a harasser to stop, unfortunately. And you do not have to rely on a target to take care. It's not their personal issue. It's an organizational issue. And that is my big drive home. It is on the company. And if you're an employee of the company, it's on you. Yes. Well, I, I thank you for your research. And that goes to show for all of those who are out there working on their dissertation and their PhDs, your work matters. But also it shows us that what we do matters and it has lasting implication. So Dr. Lynn, could you tell us a few uh, takeaways for our listening audience today? Yes. So my uh, three big takeaways, number one, do not look at other people to figure out if there's a problem because everyone's doing the same thing. Number two, there's no one right way to get involved. The right way, well, there is one right way. The right way is the way you will actually do it because if we tell you, you must do this and you won't, then you won't, right? So uh, those would be the two big takeaways. And then the third one is there are many ways to intervene, right? And you have to figure out which one you feel most comfortable with. So if you practice and play these things out ahead of time, instead of just being caught off guard, you will have these tools and you're like, okay, this is where I use this one. All right, I'm going to use this one this time. But you need to know the tools before you can use them. Well, I think it's really important what you're saying about knowing the tools, because I think one of the things that people fail to do when they say, well, how can I get involved with dismantling racism? You have to do the work. You have to, even if, if you're stopping harassment from some other perspective, there's work that you must do and don't shy away from doing the work that's required. And anything that we want to do in life, it takes us putting energy into it. And so if people uh, want to know more, particularly in the workplace about whether it's sexual harassment or, or discrimination, of course, our show focuses on the discrimination, but uh, in many ways, the sexual harassment and discrimination are, um, there's an intersectionality oftentimes with that as well. I invite you to get in touch with Dr. Lynn and Dr. BS. As you can see, she definitely um, is, is not a person who's full of BS. She knows her stuff um, and, and she can talk you through your company being more than just doing this work for the sake of saying, I'm doing this work. Just as I talk about in the things that I offer as well, dismantling racism is not, um, you know, really a sprint, it's a marathon. We have to be willing to engage in this. So how would you tell people to uh, get in touch with you in terms of just knowing more about the work that you do? Well, I would say um, they can go to LinkedIn. I am on there. Uh, Lynn Bose. I use Bose. Sometimes I use Bose Sperry. You know, I couldn't give up the Sperry part after I got divorced because then I'd just be Dr. B and not Dr. BS. Uh, they can also contact me through uh, my employer, which is now California State University East Bay, um, through that website as well. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing about it, uh, I want people to also know that when they work with you, Lynn is also a very uh, engaging person 
to work with and she's lots of fun. We've had lots of fun when I say at our parties, we've had uh, lots of fun. I do want to just encourage each and every one of you out there to get involved with, uh, involves, as Lynn said, there's a difference between involvement and intervention, but do what you can, where you can, when you can, because each of us is, we, we're in this space for such a time as this. You hear me say it over and over and over again. There's much work for us to do. We do it based on where we are. I don't care if you're 80 years old. If you're still breathing, there is work for you to do out here. I want to encourage you on July 27th at 11 o'clock a.m. Eastern time, I will be offering a free webinar on how to recognize and respond to racism because you cannot dismantle it if you don't know how to recognize it. I gave you some tips at the beginning of our show on how to get started with recognizing it, but I will uh, tell you a little bit more in the webinar on July 27th at 11 o'clock. So please, please, please make sure that you register for that by going to sacredintelligence.com. You can also find out more about uh, the other classes that I offer there. And you can also pick up a copy of my book. So Dr. Lynn, I want to ask you, do you have any words of inspiration that you would like to leave with us today? Yes, I do. Uh, So um, I like to use quotes and I have uh, two quotes from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that I really like and always have, but they, now that I research this topic more so. So the first one is, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. The second one, in the end, this, actually, this, this is my favorite. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And we can substitute coworkers there. And then last but not least, silence is not golden. Sometimes, but you know, not in these situations, not golden at all. Oh, my goodness. I love both of those quotes. And it goes back to what I was saying in the beginning about silence is complicit, right? And so, uh, and it shows our interconnectedness because we are under the impression that we, if we're privileged, for instance, I don't need to say anything about this because it's not impacting me, but indeed it does. Dr. Lynn, I want to thank you so, so much for being a guest on my show, please, everyone, uh, make sure that you uh, check her out. Go to LinkedIn, get her information, and make sure that you go to sacredintelligence.com and find out more about uh, the ways in which you can work with me on dismantling racism. I also want to invite you to stay tuned for the Conscious Consultant Hour with Sam Leibowitz, where he helps you to walk through life with the greatest of ease and joy. Thank you to my listeners for joining me today. I truly, truly appreciate you. May today you tap into that sacred part of you that allows you to make choices that manifest your good and those around you. Know that we are all one and exist because of one another. Make it a priority to share hope, love, compassion, and peace today. Be well, be safe, be encouraged. Until next time, bye for now.
Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy. And I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you on edge? Hey, we live in challenging, edgy times, so let's lean in. I'm Sandra Bargeman, the host of The Edge of Every Day, which airs each Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges. That's The Edge of Every Day on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. all pet lovers pet avengers assemble on the professionals and animal lovers show we believe the bond between animal lovers is incredibly strong it mirrors that bond between pets and their owners through this program we come together to learn educate and advocate join us live every wednesday at 2 p.m at talkradio.nyc post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.